We are going to talk for the first time in this conference specifically about the relationship between science, art, and society. Uh, so we added this subject in because we've been talking a lot about specific examples in education, in collaborative working groups, etc. But there's this larger issue which encompasses everything that we're talking about, and that's the multi-directional relationship between science and art, art and society, and science and society. And my argument, and I'm happy to hear otherwise, is that all of those relationships are damaged or dysfunctional. And so what can we do to solve that and to build upon the relationships that we envision to kind of go towards the future that, that we envision for ourselves? Um, so I will let Zach uh, introduce the panelists. All right. So participants, if you could raise your hand as I call your name. Eric Hole is a postdoctoral researcher at Columbia University and a writer whose works have appeared in The Atlantic, American Fiction, and other publications. Joining us again, Alana Quinn. Alana is an ex exhibit and program organizer at the Cultural Program at the National Academy of Sciences. Ben Lilly. Ben Lilly is a high-energy particle physicist and co-founder and director of the Story Collider, as well as a contributing editor for TED.com. He has founded a space called Caveat, an intellectual events venue. David Grinspoon. David Grinspoon is an astrobiologist, award-winning science communicator, and prize-winning author, as well as an advisor to NASA on space exploration strategy. Elizabeth Demeray. Elizabeth is a fine artist working in sculpture, digital media, and eco-art to explore the interface between the built and natural environments. Stuart Firestein. Stuart is a <laughs> Stuart is a professor and former chair of the biology department at Columbia University, where he studies vertebrate olfaction, as well as an author and an advisor for the public understanding of science to the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation. With that, let's start the round table. So something that occurs to me is that this conversation wouldn't have felt as necessary a few decades ago. Um, one of the reasons why is that historically, of course, artists and scientists have been very separate. Uh, there was a very important book called um, uh, the Two Cultures uh, by C.P. Snow about exactly how separate they are. But I feel that something kind of important began to happen in the 60s and 70s, which is that the public profile of science began to grow uh, and moved out of just being something academic. And for instance, there are now science accounts on Twitter with millions of followers. And that simply did not exist prior to science popularization. The New York Times has a science section of its website. It didn't used to, right? So I think a lot of this is that science as a cultural institution, if Martians you know, came to our planet and they were sociologists and they asked, what are some of the growing, really important driving institutions to our culture, they would very quickly hit upon science, this collection of individuals and institutions and the ideas it's producing and notice that it's been growing in relevancy 
And I think at this point, it's grown to such a degree that it's kind of uh, colliding with art and all these other things that suddenly uh, people are realizing, well, they, they not only have to deal with this, they have to come to some sort of understanding, whether it be of criticism, whether it be of support or, or whatever, but they have to do this. And so I just wanted to remark that what I see a lot of here is basically this kind of new era of collision because quite simply science has gotten so big and so important that art just has to deal with it. Oh, I, so I, I just wanted to, um, to to chime in on that. Uh, so I'm a I do um, art and science collaboration. I'm a sculptor, but I'm a professor at Rutgers, and uh, I teach uh, in the engineering department and the computer science department, in addition to the art department. And one of the interesting things I think about this sort of moment is that in so many different ways, in genomic engineering, in uh, um, AI, computer science, scientists, you know, once upon a time there was this idea of like the pure sciences, right? You'd go and you'd, you'd study the, the, the natural world. And now, even the quote unquote pure sciences are making the things that they're studying. So it's become sort of an applied practice. And in many ways, I see um, similar kinds of activities happening in the science department that you'd see over in the art department. In other words, researchers are making the things that they're studying and then they're looking at sort of the emergent properties that are coming from it. So I think that that might also be sort of one of those other kinds of bridges that we're sort of seeing right now. It's interesting that uh, I agree with everything you guys both just said, that the historical perspective on the two cultures, this division. Um, of course, if you go back um, farther in history, um, there was no such division. Science didn't exist as a separate professional endeavor uh, more than, say, 150 years ago, give or take. Um, certainly more than 400 years ago, there was <laughs> no such thing. Um, science was a branch of, of philosophy. It was natural philosophy, so it was a part of the humanity. So this professionalization, this splintering of our professional communities um, out of the specialization of knowledge, uh, you know, it's easy to get down on that. And some sense that it's also been very necessary. Wouldn't, we wouldn't have been able to learn and achieve a lot of what we have without that specialization. But then uh, we've lost a lot, too, in our ability to reconnect. And I think, in a way, the same thing is true of art. Art has become a very professionalized uh, endeavor, certainly fine arts. And that leads to some problems, too. Uh, a word that hasn't come up, I don't think explicitly, this weekend yet, but I think it has been implicit a lot in our discussions is elitism. Mm. And I think both art and science have a problem, have an elitism problem. And it hinders our ability to do um, in both uh, areas what we feel we want to do, which is connect, foster wider connections. Um, and I think um, the good news is that the co kinds of collaborations we've been hearing about and talking about can really help both art and science can be helped with their elitism problems by um, working with one another. And I've experienced this somewhat in my collaborations. I'm, um, I primarily identify as a scientist, um, although I have been involved in a lot of um, collaborations with artists. And I, I'm also a performing musician, so I get my, my art um, kick that way as well. And I found that um, one of the many values of these kinds of collaborations is they get us, and I mean us uh, collectively, artists and scientists, out of our normal boxes and force us to, um, 
to uh, extend beyond our normal audiences and present our work uh, beyond our normal spaces, um, places where, you know, uh, presenting art in places that are not places where uh, fine arts is normally presented is often one of the outcomes of these collaborations. And um, force scientists to um, expand our vocabulary in uh, communicating with, uh, quote, the general public, quote, the non-professional, um, non-science public. So I think we, we need each other um, to, to fight our elitism problem. And, and, and the good news is there's sort of a natural breaking down of those barriers that comes when we do this, this transdisciplinary work of uh, working beyond our normal professional uh, boundaries. Uh, I, I'll take it just, oh. Nice. We're going to already start? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just take a not entirely orthogonal point of view to that, but just sort of a little off to the side. Um, I, so I just came back from a two-day symposium at the Santa Fe Institute on the limits of understanding. All I can tell you is I understand less now than before. <laughs> So, so it was whatever, successful. Yeah, whatever the, but the, it was highly successful, highly successful. But one of the things that did come out of it, even though it was largely a science-oriented sort of symposium, was the idea of a plurality of methods of understanding. And I think we don't want to smush everything together. I do think there's a value to boundaries and borders. Good fences make good neighbors and things of that nature because there are a lot of ways to understand things. There's Paintings are away, and novels are away, and scientific experiments are away, and, and I don't think we want to dismiss any of those ways or try and mush them all together. What we really want is, is to develop a more pluralistic approach, if anything, where not only, and I don't just mean diversity, I mean pluralism is, in my opinion, more than simply diversity. It's the ability to allow more than one thing to go forward, even though those two things are, as they say, incommensurable. They're at odds in some way or another. And, but they're both important ideas. There's a great quote, if you don't mind, from Niels Bohr, who said, the opposite of a fact is a falsehood, but the opposite of a profound truth is often another profound truth. And that, I think, really hard to hold in your head a little bit, but a very important idea to hold in our head. So I, I'm not entirely against some of the, the boundaries that, are, um, that we have with, with art and science. Now, the failure to communicate or, or the elitism or things like that, I mean, elitism is a, you know, a second issue which we could talk about. I'll just introduce and give the floor to Ben. But, but um, I think we do have to be a little, this came up a little bit in the last panel, the idea of expertise. And so elitism grows, unfortunately, as a little bit of a weed or a lichen on, on, on expertise. Well, we don't want to lose expertise in the fight against elitism, which I agree we could all do with a little more humility in this world. I'm actually going to pick up on the expertise thread first, which is one thing we've learned is, is okay, so, so one, what I do now, I, I open an event space, and our, our notion is to provide a home for what we call intelligent nightlife. Um, we want a place where people can come out and have extraordinary things happen in the context of drinking with friends. Um, but more than that, when I pitch to producers, what I want is a space where we are blending discussion of the academics with knowledge from the performing arts. And there, we, it's, 
what is key to us is recognizing the expertise that, that exists in all of the domains that we're bringing in. Um, so for example, we, we bring in comedy groups and we ask them, you know, okay, you're really great at comedy. Can you do something that fits our space? Can you do something that is in line with our mission of, of you know, exhibiting thought in new ways? Um, we're still searching for good ways of saying this. But, um, but so we've had... Uh, a couple great successes with that. Uh, just last night, um, we hosted a group there called North Coast. Um, they're a hip-hop improv group, and they improvise a uh, musical in the style of Hamilton. Uh, and it was brilliant. These people came in, they executed. It was it was gorgeous. Um, a while ago, we brought in another comedy group. Um, they are a um, they, they run what's known as a very supportive open mic, trying to uh, develop new comics. And so we're like, great, we will bring them in. We'll give them the mission of doing uh, shows that involve science or other thinky thoughts. And they said, yeah, yeah, great, we'll do that. And the show had nothing to do with that whatsoever. And there was somewhere along the line we forgot to, to look at at what they were doing and say, oh, this is what they're expert in. Um, let's work with their own expertise instead of trying to put what we want to have happen on top of it. Whereas with, with North Coast, they have developed their own expertise. And now our job is to pair them with historians and, and people who are going to really make that, that sort of thing shine. Um, but, but more broadly, when you're talking about elitism, and, and this is a lesson we're learning and really trying to teach ourselves, um, whether whether you can get outside of the box by going transdisciplinary, uh, it's not automatic. And you have to do it very intentionally. And so part of that comes from what other expertise you recognize. Right? Are, if we're going out and we're working with um, comedy groups, are we only going out and working with ones that already serve sort of an elitist audience? And I've seen this happen. I've seen us do it. Um, or are we going out and looking for groups? I, I have a group coming in that organizes intellectual called Drunk Education. He gets <laughs> experts drunk and has them give talks about subjects. But one of the first things he said <laughs> is great. Um, yeah, it used to be called uh, Drunk TED Talks, but yeah. they sent him a cease and desist. Um, but, uh, I was great, by the way. Yeah, you were. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but so one of the first things he said to me is that he, he organized one of his most successful events ever that brought in the most people was an evening of discussion of Carly Rae Jepsen. And that's the kind of thing I feel like a lot of people in this crowd, a lot of people in our crowd are going to look at that and say, mm, you know, is that really the, the arena we want to be playing in? And the answer is, if, if you really are serious about breaking through this barrier and not just reaching the other elite crowds, then yes, you have to be uh, willing not just to go beyond your own disciplinary boundary, but outside your own comfort zone in the social arena as well. And that, that can be the, the big challenge for really getting out and really having this discussion with the kinds of audiences that aren't naturally invited in. Yeah, presenting in non-traditional spaces is really good for that. And, and, and uh, part of what I was saying before is that, is, is that these collaborations often force scientists to present science in non-traditional spaces because, I mean, I've given talks in art museums, which is mm -hmm. where I don't usually give talks because of these collaborations, and vice versa. I had artist friends come in and do things in science museums and planetariums. And so just by the nature of um, reaching across those boundaries, you, you, you um, find yourself in front of um, non-traditional audiences for your discipline. And that, alone is, I, I think, very valuable.
So uh, C.P. Snow was actually the one who first brought up the idea of a neutral space, um, and, and you already brought up C.P. Snow's two cultures. Uh, I wanted to ask you, Alana, um, since you work at the National Academies but part of the cultural programs, what's your experience there of bringing in a, a very well-educated but generally lay audience into a science institution where you're doing very art and science things? Um, not sure how to answer that. Well, I get, my question is, um, it, do you, do you feel like uh, people come in with certain expectations uh, that are met or aren't met? Do you feel like uh, people have to dumb down their art or their science in order to reach a certain audience? Um, because of some of the questions we're skirting around are like, okay, we talked a lot about science communication in the last couple of panels, but can we communicate complicated science to a lay audience? Can we connect science and society through communication? Or, or do we need to reframe the way we're thinking about it? Um, I think when people come into the space, they really are expecting scientific accuracy, obviously. Um, we really try not to dumb down anything that we, that we do. And one thing we're, we're really focused on is presenting examples of intersections of science and art that are really exciting and um, actually are solving some problems that we're facing today so that we can get a really wide audience of people interested. And we, do, we definitely try to invite all of our speakers to bring in hands-on objects that they can share with the audience. Um, we think a lot about accessibility. We try to engage all the local universities. We have a partnership with Gallaudet University um, School for the Deaf, and we have ASL interpreters at all of our events. All of our events are free and open to the public, so that breaks down some, some barriers that might exist for some people. I'm sorry. Uh, one of the things I think would not be such a bad topic to talk about for a little bit here, because we're all involved in, in some way or another, is what we mean by scientific literacy or scientific accessibility or this dumbed down versus not the, how you present complicated science to an audience and things like that, and whether, I'll even go so far as so whether there's any value whatsoever in that or <laughs> any enough value, value in what? That. Well, uh, uh, any, sorry? You said any value in? In doing that and actually, you know, working really hard, which many of us are doing. So, that, so I think there is, but I would also like to suggest that the scientific revolution, if you think it was important, which I do, <laughs> I mean, if you think the Renaissance and the Restoration were important, I think the scientific, the Reformation were important, I think the scientific revolution is probably important. But, but what was it important for? It was important for a new way of thinking. It was important for a way of thinking that said you don't get knowledge from authority, whether that authority is Aristotle or the good book or whatever it is. That's not where knowledge comes from. It's a whole new way of understanding knowledge. And it seems to me that's what we're not communicating so effectively by doing physics for poets kinds of things or looking for those things. We're not, we're not communicating the fact that what science is based on, if you'll pardon a kind of a half-assed plug here, ignorance, failure, doubt, and uncertainty. I, I wrote about those things. But, but especially notions of uncertainty. I mean, why uncertainty is so crucial to science. Not that it's a failing, that it's crucial to good science, that you can't have science, nor arts for that matter, in my opinion, but I'm not an artist, so I won't say that. But, but, but that's what needs to be communicated, it seems to me, not just here's a way to understand 
quantum physics simply and easily? I, I think one of the, the key things there is, is the lens that you view the rest of society, right? So I'm, I'm a huge fan of never using the phrase dumbed down. Um, I think that's a destructive way to look at what we're Temporary doing. Elite, yes, and, but, but it, 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 that, the sort of lens that you use shapes how you're thinking about the activity. So you're talking about how do we communicate ideas, and the, you know, so, so the, the statement is, oh, then we do this physics for poet, and maybe that's not helping with uncertainty. To me, there's a sense in which that's mind-blowing. If you want to talk to people, talk through issues of uncertainty, you could do a whole lot worse than talk to a group of poets. And so if you're, if you're not doing that in a physics and poet thing, it means you're, the lens through which you are viewing poets is as the stupid people who don't know the science. Yes, well, that's, that's and and that, yeah. that is a very destructive way of doing it. I'm agreeing with you. But I, I think, oh, I think oh. um, <laughs> it, it's very unclear and uncertain, as always. But, um, <laughs> but, uh, but the... Uh, but it's really, this is where we need to turn the mirror inward and ask ourselves, how are we viewing society? And if we view society as the unwashed masses that need to be educated, that's how our work is going to come out. And, and this is why I keep harping on about expertise and recognizing it out there with the other people that we're interacting with and going into these things not as, not as authority disseminating information. You know, it's ironic that most of our yeah, SciComm exactly. is exactly that, but going into it as a partnership. There, um, there are different ways to think about uh, scientific literacy, for sure. I think it's a, it's a good question to ask. What do we even mean by that? And you know, before uh, in the previous panel, people were talking about not liking the acronym STEAM. I've never liked the acronym STEM: Science, Technology, Engineering, Math. Not because I don't think it's you know a reasonable summation of some corner of knowledge that sort of fits together, but it's so often used um, in this narrow. Um, almost cheerleading role. We need STEM education because we need to prepare people for jobs and vocations and increase American competitiveness. And um, these are not the reasons why I'm excited about um, teaching science to people. I mean, I recognize those are important, but it is a way of seeing the world. There's a more profound, deeper um, sense of connection to the world than just here's a way to get a good job. That's why we need to get people into STEM careers. So um, I think of science literacy as, as, as spreading a way of, uh, of uh, interrogating the world, seeing ourselves in relation to the world. And when you think of it that way, it's not just something that's like sort of a good idea or enrichment. It's actually crucial, I think, for human survival right now. We have learned some things about our relationship with the world and the way it's changing right now and the role that we find ourselves in this world that, that we need to uh, deal with collectively as a species. We can't deal with it collectively if only some of us are aware of this. And it doesn't do any good to just have the scientists be aware of it and not really effective at communicating. And we need, obviously, a larger collaboration to do that. So. Um, to me, this is survival skills for humanity. You know, we've learned some important things. We have to figure out how to include more people in that knowledge and in our response to that knowledge. And so um, I do see that as, in a way, science literacy, but it's not like, here's the facts we know, and how do we get people to uh, understand them. And I agree about dumbing down. It's not dumbing down, it's smartening up. It's, it's about, if you cannot communicate what you think you know, maybe you really don't know it all that well, or maybe it's not coherent. So it's about improving our communication skills as much as it is about lowering some perceived level uh, that we're communicating 
at. And, and in that, in large sense, it's, it's really, really vital work. And, and the uh, collaborations we're talking about, I think, are absolutely essential. I just wanted to follow up. Um, Stuart, I would love to have an art symposium sometime titled The Limits of Understanding. <laughs> understanding art can be very difficult. Um, but I, I just, I just, following up um, on uh, the, the comment about sort of like what, what we need now in sort of this, this moment, you know, this Anthropocene moment, so many people don't really understand that science is the creation of factual knowledge. You know, like that, that's even that sort of basic, you know, beyond... Sort of, creation of factual uncertainty. Yeah. Okay. But but <laughs> yeah. But but it's it's a little problematic at this particular point in time when we really I I see I feel like as a society we really need to start um, helping people understand what our certain ecological moment is. Um, uh, and you know, following up on that, it's also interesting to me to see the way that humanity can, you know, the quote-unquote humanities can support that. Um, there's this really great uh, organization called the uh, ACE, the Association of Environmental Science Studies, and they're really dedicated to connecting like the hard sciences to the social sciences to the humanities. And I wandered into, um, I was presenting there, but I went, I, I wandered into like the wrong symposium and I sat down for a little while <laughs> and I realized, this is at American University, and I realized that the symposium was on um, uh, uh, geoengineering. And it was at American University, so it was a whole bunch of um, policy people there, governmental policy people there, and we're talking about geoengineering. And uh, the other thing that astounded me was that uh, at the front of the room, there was a theologian talking, uh, a the theologian talking about the way that different cultures viewed playing God. Right, playing like God, God. playing God. Golf, I golf. <laughs> 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 Sounds interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but you know, but but it was this idea that you know, like like if it, you know, I mean, uh, that 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 these kinds of considerations about like sort of what we're able to technologically do really need to be supported by you know the sum total of you know human cultural production in terms of what we the, the understandings that different cultures have come to in terms of you know the, the role of us humans in the world and it could equally apply to genomic engineering I mean there's all kinds of different things that those sorts of so questions I'll tell you what, but exactly on your point I think what the most difficult problem in at least for scientists now I mean we should get back to the art part of this as well too but it, it's a commonly quoted statistic that 48% or something of Americans don't believe in evolution and this is taken as some terrible critique of our abject scientific literacy and there were a bunch of stupid people mostly and things like that. There's a statistic behind that that's almost never mentioned and that is that 90% of those 48 people, 48% understand evolution at least at the level of a high school, decent high school education which is about as well as many biologists understand it frankly and I'm in a biology department so I can tell you that firsthand. <clears throat> The point is, these are people who understand evolution. They're literate about evolution. They're not illiterates. They have made a kind of a Pascal's wager. And I think it's, it's important for us to understand what kind of a wager that is, what the cost is of not believing in evolution. The costs are considerable for many people. Community, church, deeper held beliefs, morality, ethics, lots and lots of things. And what do you get for believing in evolution? Anybody tell me in here what you, what you get for believing in evolution unless you're a biologist doing a certain kind of experiment? 
So, so oh, that's not to defend intelligent design or any of the rest of that, but it is to, I think, suggest that this is the deeper problem, that it's not just a literacy problem. It's, it's a question of why it's better, why it makes more sense to think scientifically than some other way, why this makes a different kind of a world, and why it will solve our problems in the other way, will not solve our problems, for example, and things of that nature. Well, I, so, so far, you know, a lot of this conversation has been about this notion of science communication, I mean, effectively, right? And one of the reasons for that is because of this, you know, growing popularity. And as people were talking about last night, that's clearly one way in which art and science can kind of intersect. But it's by no means the only way. Right. I, I think that as the, this, you know, the cultural volume of science continues to grow and butt up against art, um, a lot of interesting things happen that aren't just how do we commute a, uh, communicate a scientific idea to the public in some you know, appeasing way? Right? I mean, that's a, that's a really important question. Right? And as we say, we're in the Anthropocene age. Like, the, these questions become ever more important. But at the same time, there's just this cultural phenomenon that's happening. And you know, I'm a neuroscientist who's also a writer. And something about uh, neuroscience kind of fundamentally inspires me because, as was mentioned earlier, scientific fields provide kind of metaphors for thinking. They provide a certain frame and type of language. And I actually think something very, very interesting is happening here at the outskirts, kind of in some of what we just saw. For example, those statues that used um, quantum superposition or, um, to kind of as a dominating metaphor. And what that sort of work reminds me of, and that work's purpose isn't to necessarily communicate anything, right? I mean, in fact, the whole point of art, and possibly, as Khan said, the defining property of art is that it's not normative. It's some form of intellectual play. You know, who, who knows exactly why we do it, but for some reason, we think that this is really, really important. And in previous historical periods, um, one of the things that happened was that the art reflected the important and rich ideas that were out there in the culture. And one example of this is art based around religion. I mean, if you go to any museum, there's so much in that art that you don't understand, that I don't understand, because we're not nearly as well versed in like deep doctrines of, say, Christianity to really get what's going on in that painting and what it means. And that meaning- It's also who paid for it. Right. <laughs> well, it's also well, exactly. But for example, people, um, you know, if you look at frescoes or like anything else, there's all these deep, deep yeah. meanings, and that's because artists play around with deep meanings that are out there. And it used to be the case that possibly, you know, name the most semiotically loaded uh, symbol of the last 500 years, you know, in in Western culture, and you probably name the cross, right? What would you name today? Because another alternative competing uh, symbol for something that's just as loaded with concepts and history and knowledge is the double helix of DNA. And so I think that what's happening is that science, and especially as science becomes part of the larger culture, people have developed quite literally the concepts, symbols, signs, and language of science. And something very interesting that's happening is that artists are beginning to play around with that, just like they used to play around with the fact that everyone knew the Bible backwards and forwards, or all the big stories, and then they would make art 
based around that. And so it provides this rich vocabulary. So I think that that's not, maybe that is in a sense elitist, it's not science communication, but it's certainly something that I see happening as this science bubble expands and then it kind of froths up against the art bubble in the social sphere. It's also helping us to process things that are happening in our world, new ideas, new realities, new concepts we're coming across. You know, you mentioned Christianity, you mentioned DNA, now we've got, um, you mentioned the Anthropocene, and, and, and we're trying to come to grips with ourselves as a planet-altering force and figure out if we can survive with that knowledge and actually thrive as a, as a part of the Earth system that we are, whether we like it or not. And I see, I do see artists now responding to that challenge. It's very disturbing, this notion of the Anthropocene, and it's also kind of essential. And so another iconic image is, is you know, the image of the, of the Earth Earthrise um, fr from the moon, you know, has gotten into our consciousness now, and that's, you know, I think almost up there with DNA and, and the cross, and and you know, this notion um, that we're grappling with our planetary nature um, is something that. Uh, you know, I think is obviously there's a lot of science that we need to understand and learn and communicate, but it, but it's necessary but not sufficient. And I think the artistic response to that reality as a way to help us process our situation and somehow gain the um, the global maturity to deal with it is really essential. And 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 one thing that I see happening that I think is very exciting in that um, in that vein is. Um, the tools of connectivity, which are very fraught these days and are leading to the, all these kinds of fragmentation that we're all freaked out about on the news, are also being used to facilitate global collaborations in really cool ways. There's that, uh, what is that, that Playing for Change project where people are doing these musical collaborations all around the globe. And uh, you know there are things like that where there are these sort of glimmers of some kind of global aesthetic response to our inherently global problems and global reality. And that is completely a new kind of artistic response that you know, wouldn't have been possible 20 years ago because we didn't have the tools to collaborate across boundaries in, in that way. So um, I, I think um, art simply as a response, like you say, to emerging ideas and emerging realities that help us to process the things that may be, may be problems that are originating with science but go, but go so far beyond that domain. So uh, I want to jump in here, but I'm, I'm going to kind of direct it towards you. So, um, and well, I'm directing it towards the artists and the writers in the room or in the panel. Um, we've talked a lot about science literacy. We have not talked about art literacy. Please talk about that. <laughs> How do we, I mean, yeah, science literacy, people make a choice to not believe in evolution. Okay, that's tricky. How, you know, how, how do we deal with that? But, but um, most scientists outside this room don't know a darn thing about art. They don't care because it doesn't affect them on a day-to-day -day basis, or at least they don't think it does. And yet, on the walls of their office are paintings that some, you know, administrator put there. And and if it weren't there, then they would say, huh, there's nothing on that wall. You know, so how do we, um, how do we get not only scientists to care more about art as some, something that's not like functional, uh, something that's you know Kantian, uh, not functional, but but important. Um, and and uh, Elizabeth makes uh, really interesting art that merges with technology and kind of forces you to confront it in a lot of ways, whether you want to or not. Um, it might be a, a robot plant that travels around and bumps into you. So, so yeah, <laughs> hearing from the writers and the artists in, in the table about art literacy, I'd love to hear more about that. 
Wow. Um, uh, hmm. Art literacy. Uh, yeah, that's so interesting. Um, I, I, and here I was going to talk to I was going to talk to you about the loss of religion and art taking the place of that. Um, uh, well, you know, one of the things that I think is really interesting, and this isn't hasn't really been part of this conversation, and I'm sure I missed the conversation last night, but I'm sure that a lot of this was about you know how art science collaboration um, broadens the audience for science, and I think also for art. Um, the thing that I'm really interested in, in terms of what art can do, um, is, you know, there's these wonderful, Solowit wrote this great document, 25 Sentences on Conceptual Art. And in sentence two and three, he says, um, rational ideas beget rational experience. Sentence number three says, but irrational ideas lead to new experience. And I, I really think that that's one of the things that, that, that's one of the kind of spaces that art sort of inhabits. It sort of allows us to be in a poetic or a metaphoric or an irrational space that can lead to new experiences. Um, and I just, I don't know, I, I find myself as an artist working with scientists, often in collaboration with scientists, um, asking really irrational questions. And I think that that can really lead to all kinds of wonderful different sorts of directions, both in art making and in scientific endeavor. Um, so I, I just kind of want to throw that out, which is that innovation, uh, especially when you're looking at different disciplines sort of bumping up into each other, you know, those kinds of irrational sorts of um, those sort of you know irrational kinds of questions or ideas are such a wonderful result of that um, that I just kind of want to make sure that that art sort of has a place at the table in terms of innovation from that perspective. Um, in terms of art literacy, uh, you know, how do you get people to look at art more? I, you know, that I don't I don't know. I mean, maybe um, you know, I, I feel like I'm sitting here talking about the importance of everyone learning science. Maybe you scientists have some thoughts about you know the importance of people looking at art? Certainly, I think that, um, I think that there's um, really uh, no, no sense in which um, scientists have a huge uh, literacy concerning what's going on right now in the art world. I think most of it's completely opaque to them. Um, some of that is simply because I'll be quite frank and say that a lot of the concerns of art are very insular. And I get to say this as a complete outsider to the community and someone who has no you know, serious background uh, as an artist. So this is just my personal opinion. But I think for about 30 years, the subject of art has been art. And that's a relatively boring um, uh, way, to, way to go about it. And one of the things, one of the reasons why I'm so interested in what's going on uh, here is that science seems to provide, and I don't mean it in some sort of, um, in some sort of worshiping way, and I'm not actually even, I don't even mean it in terms of a communication way. I mean it in terms of a, there seems to be a new set of public symbols, metaphors, and so on that have come into existence that art has not spent much time playing around with yet. And art is really great at that. Art is great at criticism. Art is great at representing things in new ways. And all of those are things that science needs. 
So I think you know, if you want to get scientists interested in art, one of the easiest ways is start doing art about science and don't just do it in a way that's just, wow, this is so amazing. Do it in a way like, okay, um, what, you know, uh, let me to do my interpretation of what this means, right? Or, or, or something along those lines. Or you know, a lot of the pieces that we saw up there are really, I think, really wonderful examples of that. But so, so I think part of it is, is on the responsibility of, of, of artists to kind of publicly engage with some of these things. And I wish there was more support, open support in the artistic community for things that um, are maybe a little bit more new and a little bit more out there. Even though, of course, <coughs> given what I said previously, I think that this is a very old conservative notion. I mean that in the best sense, as in you know, art has been about nature, art has been about human institutions and religion, art has been about politics, and art has been about art. And you know, our art about science is, I think, very much in line with some of the things that have produced some of the best art ever in the history of humankind. One problem, um, and I think this gets to your question of uh, you know, why we focus so much on uh, um, communicating about science rather than communicating about art, uh, and this was alluded to in the, the panel yesterday, is that a lot of the support for these kinds of collaborations comes from, um, certainly that I'm familiar with, uh, comes from the world of science and this notion of broader impacts or EPO, education and public outreach, where this art is kind of treated as an add-on to a science project. And it doesn't come for free. You have to satisfy the funding agency why you're doing this. And a lot of it, on some level or another, is that I'm gonna, this artist is going to help me communicate the science to a broader audience. And there's nothing wrong with that. I'm in favor of that. But it does tend to cast things as that's the purpose of the art is to teach about science. And then and what about, you're asking about, well, what about just teaching about art? One remedy for that, or one alternate model that I've seen being very successful is um, artists in residence programs. Uh, NASA, for a long time, had this uh, artists in residence program. I, I don't think they still do. Um, no, it's, it's an association. They can't say uh, residence anymore. And it still exists. It still exists. For, for a long time, it was, it was, I think, very successful. They had this, uh, not too long ago, they had this 50 years of the NASA arts program um, traveling exhibit that was wonderful. And they had people like Robert Rochenberg and Andy Warhol and um, you know, a bunch of different kinds of folk artists um, doing really cool stuff. And I don't know if it's true, but the rumor is the last one they had was Laurie Anderson. And the art that she did was so hostile to NASA um, that um, they were like, you know what? We're not going to do this anymore. I don't, I don't <laughs> want to spread rumors, but I, I heard that. But, but for whatever reason, I think it's a shame. If, you know, I think that where you're encouraging an artist to be for a year or whatever in that environment and respond, um, and, and, and there's the legacy of that is that some incredibly uh, deep work where artists just responded to what uh, NASA and what scientists were doing, and the. Um, other benefit of that is that then you had these, you know, when you go to NASA Ames Research Center, a place of science, you see these Rosenberg paintings of, um, of the Apollo project um, hanging on the walls there. You know, so it's also, so artists, uh, scientists get their hit 
of art from the fact that these, uh, the, the legacy, the residue is still hanging in these places. And I think that um, kind of project is, is uh, a little bit more open than the, than the sort of broader impacts mentality at um, really getting artists to respond to science and increasing what you might call art literacy, I'm not even sure what that is, among scientists and among the general public. I was just going to ask, what, I'm not absolutely clear what we mean by art literacy. I, I, I'm always suspicious of it because it sounds like somebody's going to explain a joke to me and now it's not going to be funny. And if somebody explains <laughs> a piece of artwork to me, it's not going to be really inspiring I promise anymore. I won't say a joke to you. So. And I, I actually, I don't have a good answer for that, but, but I would start by saying, you guys, please build upon this. Um, what's the difference between a print and a painting? Some people don't know that. Um, and I would argue that's decent information to know about. I, I think this is where it's worth looking at the discussions that have been having in the science literacy world. You know, what, what David brought up that, and, and Stuart, that um, it's worth interrogating very closely what do you want people to know and why do you want them to know it? And if you, if you sort of look at, at the science literacy discourse, for a long time it was about people need to know these facts and they need to know things. And you just start adding up the sheer number of things that experts in every field feel like everybody should know. And very quickly, it's more than you can, anybody can learn in any lifetime. And so you have to start asking yourself this question of like, what, when we say people should know stuff, why? What's the, what's the purpose of that? And what, what are we expecting them to get out of it? And taking very seriously the notion that the vast majority of people are not going to know the vast majority of things. And that's, that's a math problem. That is not a society problem. Um, and so, you know, I don't, I, I haven't been part of these discussions, but I suspect that's the place to start attacking this art literacy question. So I'll, to, as one answer, so my, my answer of what bit of art literacy do I want scientists to know, um, the one that I've chosen to attack that I want the people who work with us to understand is I want them to understand the process and the training that goes into it, and I want them to understand it in a visceral sense. And so like, I, I, I've been going around giving talks where I I ask this question, why don't more people go to science lectures as an evening activity? And uh, as part of this talk, I add up the number of hours of stage time that a stand-up comedian accumulates before they're good enough to be invited to be the first guest for a show for a real headliner. You know, and it's, it's literally months standing on the stage doing this work over 10 years of time. And OK, so that's the thing I want to get across. But, but the broader point is you, there's, you have to pick and choose. And you, you can't want people to know everything. Well, isn't also the issue of usefulness? So if I'm in a certain field where knowing between the difference between DNA and RNA doesn't matter to me, mm -hmm. I don't have to know the difference between right. DNA and right. RNA. So if I'm not, in, I'm not in a field that print or painting matters to me, why should I know about it? And I think this is why process and method questions are often much more interesting than specific fact type questions, because those tend to be more broad and, and universal. Yeah, so I, I would say that the, the place where it's most applicable, and this is something we've been talking a lot about, where things are applicable in science art collaboration. What are the mm -hmm. things that you want your scientist collaborator to know about you and, and vice versa? Um, 
at a conference about a year and a half ago with some of the people in this room, we started to talk about, is it possible, and then it got out of control, is it possible to create a list of terms that every single human should oh, know, yeah. no. right? <laughs> and, and it gets, just so we can all get along better. Um, but, it, but it's unmanageable. Uh, so how, how do we deal with the jargon issue is part of an issue between art and science, but especially between art and society, science and society. And um, also speaking to, speaking to your point about the art that's getting made, I think that there's a lot of things, there's a lot of trends that are happening in art right now that you don't necessarily see in the art market, that you don't necessarily see in galleries, and that you don't necessarily see in museums. Um, there are these, you know, I was just at, I, I always get the acronym, I was just at the National Socio-Environmental Synthesis Center. It's a big mouthful, but it's one of the the NSF synthesis postdoc postdoc supported synthesis centers down at um, University of Maryland, and uh, you know I found myself telling people, you know, there's this amazing new area of, you know, community art, where artists go into communities and work within communities to make stuff. You know, there's this wonderful area of, you know, uh, relational aesthetics, where people are going into place and working with the things in the places. In order for some of these um, postdocs who are working in applied practice, so they're, they're modeling and they're, they're using, you know, statistics and all kinds of good stuff, but they're also trying to figure out sort of applied practice that are applicable to their research. Um, and so sometimes I also find that um, people who need this information are not necessarily interested in this information until they figure out that it's specifically applicable to them or their process. Um, but lots of, lots of amazing things are happening that maybe we're not seeing in terms of what's called, you know, quote unquote art in a gallery or in a museum. So The New York City gallery uh, circuit. Yeah, yeah. So you don't necessarily see, and, and, yet, and yet these are, you know, these are how many artists today is, you know, are practicing. Some of the kinds of art that we're trying to showcase at the National Academy of Sciences and in our exhibitions and also in the Dazer series. Um, one example that I love to talk about is the work of Matthew Schlein, who is a paper engineer um, and has an expertise in origami and kirigami. And um, he decided he wanted to try to work with uh, some scientists at the University of Michigan, and he was moving there, and he emailed something like 30 scientists, and out of that, um, a collaboration began where he's working with a solar panel engineer to apply the kirigami and origami techniques to make the solar panel um, track the sun throughout the day, and it's about 150% more efficient than our regular solar panel. This is the type of thing that you wouldn't see in a gallery, you know, but it could be a very meaningful uh, collaboration that scientists would be interested in. Another one was um, this video game called Fold It that um, anyone can play that's about um, the way proteins fold. and. Um, people outside of the scientific community started to play this game and were able to actually solve some problems, I think, related to the HIV protein that scientists had been puzzled by for close to 40 years, you know? So these are some, some of the kinds of impacts that we're trying to show to maybe make scientists care a little bit more about the arts. Well, I think, you know, as a scientist, um, it, both in my own experience and observing the experience of other scientists, whenever, um, we genuinely um, 
collaborate with artists whenever I have, I always learn something new about the science. It's not just about like, oh, I'm going to find a new way to tell my story. Um, and I think this is common. Um, when I first encountered the art of uh, Monica and Tyler Aiello, both of whom have, have spoken here, um, I was really blown away because as a planetary scientist and astrobiologist, I think a lot about um, you know, trying to understand uh, comparative planetology, planetary surfaces, um, and comparative uh, biology, life on other planets. And then when I saw Monica's artwork where she's responding deeply to um, not just trying to depict what it looks like on other uh, planetary surfaces in a photorealistic way, which is what a lot of space art is, but actually trying to understand the processes and the, uh, over time, how a landscape is built up and then using different materials um, to somehow duplicate or synthesize that and building up these 3D um, you know, canvases. When I started understanding her process and, and looking at it and thinking about it, it really made me realize new things about the way planetary surfaces work and the way I was seeing them. So it made me not just, I think, better at communicating, but better at understanding through seeing things through her lens. Same, same with um, Tyler's sculpture. He does these, uh, these 3D uh, amazing, if you haven't seen his work, check it out, look online. But um, like he'll do these giant metal sculptures of some really tiny biological thing that in real life is like this big, you know, a blade of grass or a, uh, some insect piece, but they don't make it, you know, 20 feet high and, and, and it looks like some alien thing and I'm like, ah, oh, what is that? And it's like, well, it's an actual duplication of this thing on just on a completely different scale and it made me think about scale in a whole new way. And when you think about uh, life on other planets, which is what I do for a living in part, uh, you've really got to think about scale because the physics is such with a planet with different gravity and different atmospheric pressure and all this that some of the same um, shapes and the same forms are going to manifest to solve the same biophysical problems as they um, are solved here on Earth, but it will be at different scale in response to different physical domains. So simply seeing his artwork um, not only moved me in the way that I think art just for its own sake does, but it made me think, wow, you know, that could actually exist if you had a planet that was like that. And th this uh, initial impression le has led to a long and fruitful collaboration that I've had with them that I think both the art and science has benefited. So it's, it goes so much more beyond just like uh, a tool to communicate what we know and what we think the masses need to know. I think what, oh, go on, oh. go on, no, no, go on. I, I was gonna change the, the, the discussion oh. completely, so, <laughs> so you can. This might as well, but, <laughs> all right, maybe not. Uh, so, so what I wanna know, in terms of my own personal artistic literacy from artists are the kinds of things that I think are actually common to science. I don't believe in the scientific method. I don't believe there's any such thing as a crock of shit that we've dreamt up. So there's no thing where you put stuff in and you turn a crank and out come gadgets and cures and things like that, right? The way scientists work is with intuition, inspiration, curiosity. They make choices. They rehearse. They do all kinds of things that I think you would say any artist does as well. I want to know how they do it. I want to know how they treat these same sorts of ideas, um, these same sorts of uh, processes, um, because I think that's where there's a real connection to be made in a way. That that's, that's where, not only for its usefulness, but because I think it's, again, a kind of a pluralistic approach to these things that, that, would, that would provide value in both directions. I assume artists would like to know the same thing about scientists. Science is a little bit of an art. 
right? I mean, <laughs> well, it's a great deal of it, really. On um, you know, for, for no matter what we may pretend. So we've been talking, for example, mostly about. I think when we say art, we somehow or another in our head get painting and sculpture, but it does include things like theater and writing and and uh, uh, performance in general, dance and so forth. And I, I you know, I think the idea of um, uh, the uncertainty of a performance, the uncertainty in a live performance is extremely important. The experimentalism of a live performance especially is extremely important, although I, I think graphic artists experiment too. The notion of rehearsal as a kind of, to me, very has a great deal in common with what we do in the lab for weeks and weeks before we publish a paper on opening night, you know? <laughs> I think it's true. Science is, is uh, you, in a way, good because it's useful to us but the arts are really what most of us are engaged in there's a lot more engagement in art than there is in other words everybody in this room is i'm sure engaged in one way or another with with art but not everybody in this room is interested in science so art is a much bigger part of our life well it might be a bigger part but it's easy to take uh, take for granted. Um, well, that may be. Like Eric was saying, you know, we've been doing art forever. We don't really know why. Um, maybe some of the neuroaesthetics fans in the room can can shed light on that. But certainly, everyone in this room is extremely engaged with entertainment. But it's not always art. Um, I, but, you know, uh, yeah, I mean, it's on the entertainment. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, but just a very very briefly before we move on to the. Uh, next topic, um, it was to say um, that one of the things that I think is important is not just saying that, okay, you have this relationship between scientists and the public, and then you do that through science communication, and then you have the rela relationship between artists and the public, and you do that through science communication. But I think it's very, very important to put the scientists and artists in communication together. Because regardless of whether or not we immediately go out and like talk about the findings, I do think that this creates like a trickle-down uh, kind of effect, where the moment you have intellectual fields put in contact with one another, there will be, at some you know, future point, there will be communication about it, there will be ideas about it. So you know, it's, I think it's just as important to ask, how can we get a very good artist and a very good scientist uh, working together, and how can we get scientists to understand what artists are doing and artists to understand what scientists are doing um, without immediately then going to this next step of what's going to be this outcome of that. How will you know a very good scientist and a very good artist? <laughs> <laughs> I can tell you about, well, oh. I'm sure the artist could, could tell you that. Okay. It's not super undefinable, but... Uh, so I just, I just, uh, I have to tell you guys. When I saw that I was on a panel called Art and Science and Society, I thought, oh no, because we're we're going to be we're going to be asked to to answer, you know, we're going to be asked to you know cure all of these societal ills. And I thought, ah, oh, this is going to be really rough. And then I noticed that there were two panels. I noticed that there was one before the other one, and I thought, ah, oh, the first one has these wonderful opportunities to bring up all these problems and then, and then kick, kick it to panel number two. So I'm just curious, like, what do you guys? I mean, you know, in terms of society, Society, uh, what do you guys think that we can answer? What, what should we be answering right now in terms of art and science collaboration and, you know, society at large? What what could be? What could we or should we be doing? 
Well, people, I mean, we have some real problems in our society, and we artists and science collaborating cannot solve them all, but I think we can actually play an important role. Um, people are alienated from um, these sources of creativity and these, these sources of knowledge, and, and we also are at a time of um, somewhat of crisis in our, in, in our world right now. And so um, if we can, um, you know, any form of communication where you're getting people to think about the, the, the bigger picture of our, our existence and how we relate to the planet and the universe um, is, uh, we're contributing to, uh, to the solution. We're helping to save the world, I think. And um, you know, I'll just give you a, an example of something I've been involved in. Um, uh, I have this, uh, this group called the House Band of the Universe. Um, and it's a, it's a band, a musical group, but um, one, of, one of the band members is a visual projectionist. And we only play in um, planetariums. And the, um, the part of the context, part of the content is, um, well, we use a software called Uniview where you can uh, drive through the entire universe through any data set. It's very powerful from the cosmic microwave background right up to uh, the latest um, information from New Horizons at Pluto and solar system and seamlessly drive through it. This has been used a lot in educational programs, which is great, but when we get the band in there and we do the spoken word component about the history of the universe, um, um, we tend to get a different kind of crowd in there, and um, I, I th think it's very successful. People are thrilled, and they, I think they learn some science, but that's not really the goal. It's like they should go away knowing some facts. In fact, we've evaluated it in that way because it helps help us to get some funding. But they also, clearly people are inspired, but also the musicians, the artists have an outlet, and they get to be in an environment where they don't normally play, and, and, and in son, a sonic environment too, because a sphere is a very weird uh, and challenging um, sonic environment as well. I mean, a, a hemisphere, a dome. Um, and. Um, I think it's, it's a case where the whole has been very much greater than the sum of the parts and people leave there feeling uh, inspired and they've learned something and they've been exposed to some art and, and there's a sort of ecstatic thrill of like, well, I, I was going to this thing. I didn't know what it was going to be. It wasn't a science lecture. It wasn't a normal concert. I, I, now I'm leaving and I still don't know what it was, but I feel great. <laughs> and I feel maybe even a little bit more committed to um, trying to um, spread the word that we uh, live on a planet and we have to uh, deal with it as a planetary species. So I don't know. I just think that um, when you actually do these things that magic can happen that is is very useful we are I, mean, oh. I, I hate to cut you off we are going to open it up for questions now from the audience so if you have a question please line up at the microphone behind me and um emphasis on on the question part we love love your comments but you can comment all you want over lunch too we want to get in some good questions before we take a break Great. Hi, I'm uh, Patricia Olenek. I'm the director of the Graduate School of Art at Washington University in St. Louis, and I co-host the um, the Leonardo Laser Events with um, Ellen Levy here in New York every six weeks, and. Um, and I'm also part of this group called the Alliance for the Arts and the Research Institutions. So for those of you who have sort of seen me at some of these meetings, you know that what I'm really passionate about is kind of articulating a position for the intrinsic value of the arts. Um, 
Um, there's so much talk, particularly in academic uh, circles, about arts service to other disciplines. And uh, although I understand why, you know, the kind of uh, quantification and the data that goes with that is very important, especially if you're writing a grant, uh, I do think that the other side of that has to be balanced out in the art, that, that we as artists have to do a much better job of articulating what it is that we do. So getting back to, I'm sorry, uh, uh, your name? Eric. <laughs> yeah, Eric's comments um, about, um, uh, you know, art being sort of uh, focused very inwardly on itself um, and the example of the sort of the painting on the wall. I think this is a common uh, kind of misconception, especially within academic circles, is that the function of art is to beautify walls, right? Nobody ever really talks about uh, what art does, right? It's the more, as it, it gets relegated strictly to the, to the realm of the aesthetic, and there's not enough focus, uh, in my opinion, on uh, what it is that art does, not what does it look like, but what it actually does. And I think if we can focus more on that, I think that this will really help to expand the, uh, the conversation. So I'll be speaking at 2.15, a little bit about my role in a medical humanities program as well. But I'm wondering if any of you want to comment on the institutions that you work at and how focusing on what art I hope that wasn't me. What art does, rather than what art, you know, what it, what the aesthetic properties are, but what it does, um, especially when it comes into contact with other disciplines. I would love to hear other comments on that. I, I would love to take that. Um, and, and actually, this was something to something I wanted to mention this to you while we were talking in terms of like, you know, the um, the the uh, the importance of art. Um, uh, as an artist, I always feel like I can't function. I'm, I'm a, an advisor at the Art and Artificial Intelligence Laboratory at Rutgers, which is a platform for the artistic use of uh, computer vision and machine learning. And I can't make my art unless I have collaborators in other fields that allow me to function. So I can't even make art unless I have all of this other wonderful support. So I always kind of feel like I'm sort of in this weird situation where I am really appreciative of all of these other wonderful disciplines that allow me to even function. Um, but in terms of what art does, I was just gonna, when, when we were talking about this, my undergraduate background is cognitive psychology and neuroscience. But I realized that when you make a piece of art, you can communicate things that are very difficult to communicate otherwise. Uh, you can make a statement that is contradictory. You can make a you you can make something that is simultaneously beautiful and ugly at the same moment. And you know, conceptually, that I just when I figured that out, it was so extraordinary that you can communicate things and in ways that you can't do in other kinds of disciplines. So that's just one of the things that I wanted to sort of offer up as this sort of this funny little thing that might be a little different. Um, I don't know if anybody else wants to take Patricia's question. As a biologist, don't you think there is some connection between art and emotion? As opposed to <laughs> Yes. I don't think you have to be a biologist to feel that. <laughs> you know, Being elitist when now. There was, no, but when there was the Matisse show at the MoMA a couple of years ago. No, uh, there was what, sorry? The Matisse show uh, at the MoMA. Yeah. And I heard from a number of people that no matter how you felt when you got there, by the time you left the show, you felt calm. You felt peaceful. So I'm just wondering that what, what, what that role of art 
is an important role in our lives. And I just wondered from your perspective what... I mean, I don't have an answer to that, but I, but I feel it's a little bit of the, you know, telling the person the meaning of the joke problem. I mean, in, in a way, we should be happy that that's the way it works. And I don't know that we need to understand the underlying neuroscience of why it is that... I don't think that will add to art one bit. I mean, I think this is one of the big problems right now with the neuro hyphen everything in the world, that neuroscience is about to explain law, ethics, humanity, arts, writing, all this other stuff. And I'm not interested in those explanations for the most part. I mean, I, they may be okay, but I don't think it will add any one thing at all or an ounce of anything to any of those areas, in my opinion. But in terms of evolution and in terms of the presence of art in, 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 in the history of mankind, there is a particular role that that plays. Well, I, I mean, I think, you know, there are a lot of people that make the case, and I think it's generally maybe even well accepted now, that, that uh, graphics preceded language, necessarily. That you first paint a deer on the cave before you have a word for deer, which is a significant abstraction from just representing the deer. But representing the deer is the beginning of an abstraction. And that it's, you, we could never have developed the language that's allowing us to have this talk today without it. So, yes, you could say that it precedes it. I, I want to just very briefly say that, you know, it, there's, there's a bit of a linguistic thing going on here if we say that the aesthetics of art is just how something looks on a wall. Um, you know, saying that, that art doesn't have to have a function doesn't mean that it's non-causal. It doesn't mean that it's epiphenomenal, right? It means that there doesn't have to be an express outcome for this thing that you're generating, and it doesn't have to have a particular use in the world. And, Many would argue that is the fundamental definitional aspect of art. Of course, it ends up causing experiences, causing change in the world, causing all these ramifications, right? But it is definitely true that, at least if you look at the history of art, we, there was a period where rep both representation um, of just other things um, kind of has, has really went out the window for a period of time. And one of the things that's happening with science and art is that because science is literally the stuff out there in the world, definitionally, um, or well, one could have argue about that, but, um, <laughs> but, but, but clearly we, we think of things that way. It provides this new way to do representational art that I think is really unique and, uh, and, and novel. Yeah. So I think we're at the dawn in a lot of ways of understanding what the actual impacts of art are on learning, on behavior, on emotion, on lots of things. But I, I want to put out um, a little bit of a model here to ask you to react to it. So if we take as a point of departure um, Eric's point at the beginning of this panel about the, the, the explosion of science and the impact of that, let's take that a step further and say that we, we live in a world which is heavily and increasingly defined by the products of science. And that shapes our experience, our life, our culture, many, many things about how we, how we live and how we behave. Okay, so in that environment, there are maybe, here I'll kind of borrow from Roger's fuzzy taxonomy a little bit. Uh, there may be three ways that we might think about that, how art fits into all of that. The first is that art can kind of help us understand it better. And so that embraces, but it's not limited to science communication, because it also then touches on understanding what the implications of that are and what that might mean to us as humans. So then there's the second level. So this world that we're living in, where science is, is and its products are driving our society, is requiring behaviors of us, which 
we don't necessarily have high levels of skill in development for, and in some cases, may be at odds with our evolutionary heritage. So art, and as, as we begin to understand more about how art actually impacts us, we'll learn more about this, um, art can help us with that in lots of different ways. And so there's that second level. Then, of course, there's the third level, which goes beyond that, which is so if the products of science are driving us in directions which are beneficial but also troublesome in many ways, can co-creation between art and science be a way of addressing that? So I think of that as, as a little bit of a framework, and I kind of want to throw that out there and see what you think about that. I'll take that a little bit um, and tie it to the answer of, the of a couple previous questions of what, what the function, a function of art and society is, um, which is I think one of the things that gets missed a lot in the sort of uh, the traditional SciComm art mode, particularly the ones funded by science agencies, is that one of the best things art can do for science is to critique, mm -hmm. and to critique and, and to ask very hard questions. And I, I, I agree with your premise that and, and Eric's that one of the defining features of now is that our experience is mediated by science and technology. And I would go a step further and say it is absolutely essential that art uh, engage with that in a way that really wrestles with important questions. And if you want to, you know, you can point at very specific things where, you know, you've got Elon Musk building a program to send us to Mars, and this whole discussion happens very often in, in a science and technology environment where you're not bringing in people looking at the social aspects of that and the ethics of it. And so I, I feel like there's two functions art can do that in that environment. One is the direct critique, you know, make a parody of, of Elon Musk or whatever. I come from the comedy world, that's what I would do. But um, <laughs> I, I, there's other ways to do it, obviously. Um, and then, uh, but the other thing to do is to try and chip away at this barrier, because one of the reasons we don't critique science and engineering is that it is viewed as this, this thing that is walled off and that there is no access to. And that's where the value of the access-oriented part of, of this science communication, art, et cetera, stuff comes in is, is making it possible for those critiques to happen by, by convincing people that it isn't this high priesthood that, that can only comment on these things. Hi again, as a member of the next panel on science and art and society, I'm going to feed forward to you what we would feed back later if we had time machine. <laughs> anyway, so the, thank you for the provocation. Um, so what do you think of this? I'm putting together um, how to deal with the jargon issue, the knowing too many things, list of everything someone should know issue, uh, together with preaching to the choir issue, which is no matter how wonderful it is, we still do. And um, the alienation from science and art. These are all kind of related to me. So coming at it this way, uh, ethnoscience, uh, the things that people have done way before even writing was invented that make things work for us, ecologies and so forth. Uh, NASA and other agencies have had some projects with this in the past where, for example, they work with people in the northern regions and the Arctic regions to figure out different ways of seeing snow and ice so they could then better map and model using the data from satellites. Great. How was that done? And this is the answer to all those previous questions. The public. 
They basically hung out in the community for months, weeks, whatever, to get through lots of things like, what's the problem here? What's, how, what's life? And then finally getting to even metaphysical, maybe epistemological questions. And then finally getting to the sea and the ice and all that, the actual ice colors. They were working with people who were not scientists and not artists. Um, but they came out with some really good stuff. And that's kind of the answer to what I'm thinking here. The, the best context for art and science coming together is the public one. And that brings me to the other thing I left out. Art is free from rationality, which is the beautiful thing about the public. The public is free from rationality, <laughs> as we see so much today. Very free from rationality. And they can say contradictory things, and it becomes a news story, and it becomes a president. And that's just the way we live. And that's normal. That's totally has always been that way. So you know, work with it, right? Um, so anyway, I'm thinking of the public sphere, uh, those uh, synthesis center kind of things. So how would that work if that, if we were to, with every, at every scale, uh, find some public that wants something done with their community and they know their community and whatever the hell that is, that they would like. And then artists and scientists get together around that and then kind of work with these people. And whatever the result is, who cares? You don't know that in advance. It's going to be messy and stupid. And then something's going to come out of it and everyone's going to be happy if they listen to the public. And because you know the brilliant scientists and artists have time to talk to each other, blah, 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 all that. So I think you, um, the key word, uh, or a key word, it's, it's a great um, point. You make a great question. Uh, a key word is, is, is listen. Um, and we can do those, those community projects um, in different um, non places where we don't normally maybe do science projects and work with communities. But we have to get um, away from a mindset um, that I think is pretty endemic in the um, scientific community and, and shed some of our arrogance and, and shed some of our um, sense that we're bringing the word from on high. Uh, to work really successfully with a community like that re, uh, requires a lot of humility and, and requires a kind of radical listening where you're willing to not be efficient. And that's a little hard where you're getting paid to do something. You're going to spend some time um, being purposely a little bit aimless and just listening. Uh, I'll give you an example of something I think was very successful. I was part of something a few, uh, for a few summers. Uh, I wish it was still ongoing, um, called the, the NASA and the Navajo Nation um, uh, uh, summer um, space camp with middle school students. And we collaborated. We had a few uh, NASA scientists, I was one of them, and a few Navajo elders and, and a medicine man, and about um, uh, 20 middle schoolers. And we spent a couple weeks traveling around the Navajo Nation together, going to different landscapes, learning the cultural stories of the land, um, teaching uh, our perspective on the scientific stories of the land, listening a lot, everybody learning a lot, and then in the end, the middle school kids synthesized all of this with art projects in which they combined 
um, the stories, um, the scientific and the uh, um, and the cultural stories, and the, and they were really really powerful. Like one um, one group of uh, middle, and and the kids collaborated to do this. Who said one group of middle school kids made a you know the Navajo uh, cradle boards when the, when a child is born is this whole symbolic thing. So they made the cradle board, but it was also the story of the universe with uh, you know the Big Bang and and all this stuff. And and another another group of these uh, middle school kids they um, synthesized. There's this volcanic site we went to, which we told them about basalt and this and that, but their, their traditional story is that the, the basalt flows are the giant's blood because there were these, this ballad of giants. So they did this diorama that had the giants battling and their blood spilling out, and then it was also a basalt flow. And it was just, um, it was tremendous. We all learned so much. But it wouldn't have worked if we had gone in there with the attitude of like, these are the points we're going to teach, and this is our time scale. And at the end, you will be able to be quizzed on this knowledge, and you'll be able to learn it. You know, you have to listen, and you have to be open to the fact that you're going to learn as much as anybody else. comment about artistic literacy. Um, I ran a little round table a couple years ago about art and science at Emory University and uh, the, one of the people at the table was a surgeon and said, you know, well, I'm an artist as well because I do watercolors. And the artist at the table got really infuriated and said, um, you know, that's like me saying I've dissected a few frogs so I'm a surgeon. <laughs> and so, you know, without getting into the you know, realm of um, elitism. Uh, I, I do want to point out that the elephant in the room is that art and science are not on a level playing field. And, um, you know, an example of that is that we teach science K through 12 and into universities, and it's required in most of those grades. And, you know, we stop teaching art in what, maybe fourth grade, depending on the, you know, whatever the school district is. And, you know, if you look at funding amounts, you know, the National Endowment for the Arts, National Science Foundation, you can add zeros, you know, to NSF and to DARPA grants and so um, that's my comment. Um, so my question sort of <coughs> reflection is sort of um, picking up this topic of listening. Um, I'm starting up an art and science residency program in the Appalachians called Art Science in the Field as if center. You can go there as if dot center. Our residency program starts this March. That's my little plug. Um, and it's, you know, it's in a sort of cosmopolitan part of the Appalachians. It's very near to Penland School of Crafts. We're right over the mountains from where Black Mountain College used to be. Matthew Schlein was actually at Penland this summer. Um, there are a lot of makers in the area that come from other places. But nevertheless, you know, that 48% of people who don't believe in evolution, a lot of those people are my neighbors. And um, so this, it presents a problem. I don't want to exist in a vacuum. I don't want to be this jewel of wonderfulness in the middle of, you know, quote unquote, nowhere. I want to actually have relationships with the community. And so one of the things I'm thinking about approaching this is, um, well, there are three things. Um, this is an area that's sort of tribal. I thought, you know, I'm from the South. I can just breeze right in, and I'll blend in after a couple of years. But actually, people have been in that community for like eight to 10 generations. They all know each other. There are like 30 last names that are in the county, and there's like, um, this real sense of you're not from here. And so there's this tribalism um, and I've thought like finding an ally within the community who's from there who can sort of like help to you know approach people and help tell our story and present our work is a really important thing. And then the other two things are that people are um, more the older generations than younger gen generations, really tied to the land, tied to place. And um, that's a lot of, of what this Art Science Center is about, is like art science plus nature, you know, being in this southern Appalachians, which is incredibly biologically diverse and interesting geology. So that pride of place is another way to tap in. And 
the third one is that, you know, there's a sense of independence. And like, as much as people from that region are, they value authority from the church, they do not value authority from the federal government. And this kind of goes back to their Scottish roots and, you know, a lot of history. But um, that sense of DIY that, you know, makers have and that scientists have and trying to use that. And so I guess my question is like, um, looking for wisdom about dealing with difficult, almost sometimes hostile audiences to science and like what are some approaches for um, tackling that challenge? Anybody up for it? Uh, I, I, you know, I just... There's, oh. There is a, a, a growing literature on this that um, is run by, by people who describe themselves as studying the science of science communication. Um, Dan Cahan at Yale, um, I am utterly blanking on everyone else's name, but he has a blog where he lists these people, and it's, uh, there's no, there's no uh, magic bullet, of course, you know, it's lots and lots and lots of hard work, but they, they have identified things, and it, it, like David's point, or no, sorry, um, Stuart's point about people actually do understand how evolution works, and so learning things like, uh, you know, if your approach is to teach them evolution, you're going to fail. And so they've learned a number of things like this. To be honest, it feels like they're about 2% of the way we need to be, but it's, it's growing. I feel like we need a panel just for that question, yeah. <laughs> honestly. Um, I'm Patricia Miranda. I'm an artist and an educator and curator. Uh, I've done a lot of work with my, in my own work with um, art and science, and I teach in a BFA and MFA program, uh, and also develop K-12 programming, STEAM-based programming in New York City and the tri-state area especially. But I wanted to just push back a little bit on some of the art conversation, which I thank you for, <laughs> Patricia, starting that pushback. Um, the, uh, I felt a little bit like the conversation about art in this panel has been kind of like a poor stepchild or the poor relation a little bit. And I would just want to echo what Patricia is saying about art having a value of its own. I think you've mitigated some of those since since she wrote, got up and said that. But I also think this idea of artistic literacy, I want to, literacy, I want to push back on that too, um, with all due respect. Um, I don't think it's the artist's fault. I don't think that artists are making art about art and that that's an isolated thing. I think thing. I think that the aesthetic and the formal are always enfolded by the social throughout history in every instance of art making. So those frescoes that you may, that we may not understand is not necessarily only because we may not understand all of the Christian symbolism, but also because it's enfolded by the social of the time. And so there's an entire culture built into those paintings which were didactic and they had certain functions um, that it's invisible to us and we'll never know because we can't enter a medieval mind, right, or a Renaissance mind. Uh, and I would also say that I could take any of you to Chelsea tomorrow and give you an, well, tomorrow, not tomorrow, it's Sunday, but um, <laughs> I could take you to, through Chelsea and show you artists that are deeply, deeply engaged with the issues of the day, uh, and that maybe it's not getting out into the mainstream culture in that direct way, but it filters down even to like um, Doho Sa's painting uh, work appearing in like a Drake video or something like that. So I think that their artists are in conversation with each other, they're in their conversation with art history, and they're in a conversation with um, all of culture. So you can just think of the Kara Walker, sorry, not the Kara Walker, 
well, yes, you can think of Kara Walker as an artist who's done that, but the Dana Schutz Emmett Till painting controversy, if you know about that, or the Sam Durant uh, scaffolding at the Walker Art Museum, these are two things that created enormous, enormous discourse that bled out. Maybe it is this kind of core community that's having the depth of the conversation, but it does filter out. And I've had these conversations with my students over and over again. So framing it as the aesthetic and the formal are always unfolded by the social is one of the sort of pedagogies that I've developed. And I developed a pedagogy of critique based on, you know, critique is something that in the art world we do all the time. Um, but to help artists and professional artists I work with a lot in developing a critical language to be able to communicate what they're doing in their work without it dissecting, trying to do the thing where you're like, what does this mean? Well, who cares, right? Um, it's, not about, it's not about why, it's never about why, it's about what. What is happening, what is the art doing? Because even a painting on the wall is a verb, right? It's in action, it's in dialogue, and it's in discourse. And I think that people don't understand that about art, not because artists are not doing it, but because we don't teach art in the school in such a way that that, dial that discourse, like someone just said before, that science is taught K through 12 and art is not. So um, it's, it's a constant, constant conversation that we're having. And I, um, I think in the pedagogy that I work in, it is about developing a critical language that communicates those things without dissecting them into sort of, you know, if you dissect the frog, you understand the frog, right? We don't. You can dissect the frog and understand many things, but you still don't understand the frog. So the same thing is true of art. So I just wanted to push back on that. Sure, sure, sure. Ab ab absolutely. Um, <laughs> we are a bit short of time. Yeah. Let me let me briefly comment on that. So so you know I, I completely agree. I was speaking specifically to science literacy among uh, sorry artistic literacy among scientists. So, you know, it is certainly true. I mean, I'm, there's but that's many... But that's a cultural thing, right? It's not embedded in the, in the culture of education in a way that a scientist would come up. So I, I work in, worked in Europe this past uh, last semester, and uh, it is much more, it's not perfect, of course, but much more embedded in the culture that people are learning about art the same way they're learning about wine or food. You know what I mean? It's, it's considered this kind of larger conversation that you're all a part of as a citizen. And so... I, yeah. It's not here. It's very, it's very uh, siloed here. Hey, hello. Um, so I wanted to push on for a second the society part of this panel, and, and specifically and unfortunately politics. Um, <laughs> sorry. Uh, so uh, as was just said, artists are very engaged in, in political issues these days, and uh, more than ever. But uh, I'm curious, my question for the panel is, is what is the responsibility, the unique responsibility of scientists politically? In my opinion, very quickly, uh, is it, I, there's sort of too often a sort of view from nowhere neutrality that's mixed with a little bit of elitism. And I, I worry sometimes that the best we can do is like make signs for the climate march and, and get out in kind of a way that could be construed as elitism when you're, when you're just sort of presenting the facts and hoping for the best. Is there, and then one other example I want to mention uh, was last year during the campaign, in the heat of the campaign, Neil deGrasse Tyson made this uh, unfortunate idea, I think, called, why don't we all just live in a world called rationalia? Uh, and then I think some of the new atheist people made t-shirts and it was this whole thing. 
Uh, like, really? Okay, so the, anyway, that, that's my question for you guys. What, what, I, I thought that was bad, and I think it speaks to a certain kind of elitism that was talked about earlier. What should scientists be doing politically, uh, or what should they not be doing? Yeah, it's a fair question, and it's, it, it's a difficult one, of course, and something I've, I and a lot of my colleagues have been involved in discussions of that for a, a long time. And, and you're right, we were sort of trained, brought up with this idea that science is value neutral, which of course is, it's not. Um, and it gets, gets us off the hook in a way that we're really not. Um, but the, you know, the opposite extreme of that is an interesting question. Should scientists be activists? Uh, and there's danger there too. Um, you don't want to enslave your, when you're actually practicing science, you don't want to enslave, you don't want to have an outcome that you're seeking to try to make a point. We, I can give you examples of science that is aired in that way because, oh, if I only had this result, it would help strengthen this political thing that I think is important. That's dangerous too. So um, there's no simple answer to this, but it's obviously not we just pretend we're from on high disengaged. Um, one thing that I will say is that um, there is a genuine power and I think radical uh, radicalism to telling the truth about the world the way we really see it. In other words, when you see the Earth uh, from space, you don't see national borders. You know that uh, macroeconomics, as it is described by economists, is wrong, fundamentally because it doesn't include ecology and notions of natural you know, limits and so forth. Um, you understand that the world is a place of um, deep uh, cycling of, of elements and, um, uh, and energy and we're embedded in those cycles. And th so there is a radicalness to just simply teaching things about the world that we've learned that we need to integrate to be successful as a species. And um, if that's a political act, then, uh, then I'm guilty of it. Can you say something <laughs> very quickly about this? Okay, very quickly. We're at time. Uh, uh, I actually don't agree with you, <laughs> largely about this. I mean, some of it's okay, but I think the job of science and society now is to be optimistic. I'm, that may sound like a crazy thing to say today, but I, I think we completely blew the climate change thing. I think it's the scientists' fault that it's as screwed up as it is, because we took this thing, we have made it a kind of a finger-wagging, problematic issue for everybody. You've got to get on board with this or there's something wrong with you. My opinion is we should have said, you know what, we have these amazing new technologies from space and geology and elsewhere. We have learned that the planet is warming up. This is potentially dangerous. Guess what? We're great at this. We can solve this. We got to the moon. We can solve this too. We just need to work on this. And, and then it's a kind of a, you know, there's a sense of optimism. Maybe it's foolish optimism or whatever. But to me, this is the way you garner social activity with no, I actually agree with you completely. Perhaps you misunderstood me that, that, I, that I do think that, that there is also kind of an optimism that comes from that global long-term view that you can see that we've actually confronted right, problems like this before. Um, okay. and Many times. All right, all right. Yes, yes, go on. These poor people are starving. But a great conversation over lunch and to be continued for sure. Um, everyone was... We, we don't have time. Very quick. Well, I mean, people... Yeah. Very quick, no comments. Oh, questions for lunch. Questions for lunch. Oh, there you go. So One I have line a, comment. I have a really provocative question. <laughs> if, we're not re if we're being honest with ourselves, is it not the role of art in science art collaborations to 
glorify and help us worship science. Science has kind of taken the role of the church in our society and we, we erect these huge buildings with magnificent architecture that we get architects in and we commission sculptures and statues like the ones we saw that sit inside and around our scientific spaces and they become these behemoths that, that society can worship against and art enables that worship in the same way as it did with the church. When you say it does it, that, but it also does the opposite. There's the critique and the bringing it down to size. Questions for lunch. The, 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 the part that I wanted to include is that the common vocabulary here would be art history and the fact that technology made art change over the years. And so you start with charcoal in caves, and then you go into Egtempura, you go from Mesopotamia to Egypt to Greece to Rome. To, that's a Western-focused view for sure. But in that, that's the vocabulary that we could use as commonality to cross over because the technology would be used to basically progress all of this. Thank okay. Thank you so much, everybody.